Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. And we've been working our way through. This is week four of the semester already. Pretty good, right? It's like, uh, yeah, making progress. So um, hope it's going well for you guys. And uh, tonight uh, we come to a passage, uh, John chapter five. uh, And uh, I'll just go ahead and read it for us. And we'll spend some time looking at it together. So this is uh, John five verses one through 18. And uh, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Uh, Pray with me again. Uh, Oh God, as we come to your word now and uh, spend some time in it, we pray that you'd guide us. We pray for your spirit to apply it to our hearts and make us different. Uh, We come from a lot of places tonight, and no matter who we are and where we come from, uh, we pray that you would meet us there and change us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I am a big fan of the TV show The Office. Anybody a fan of The Office? A bunch of you like The Office? Hopefully most of you have seen The Office or know what it is. Uh, And The Office is great because there's all these like cringe-worthy moments in it and it makes you uncomfortable. And Michael Scott, the boss in The Office, is just like the worst but also the best. And the most cringe-worthy episode, in my opinion, is called Scott's Tots. It is the worst. And in Scott's... In Scott's Tots, okay, some of you are, are on board with me, which is good. Um, in Scott's Tots, uh, what happens is that uh, 
I think it was like 10 years earlier, Michael Scott had made a promise to a bunch of third graders that if they graduated from high school, he would pay their college tuition. And then <laughs> 10 years have passed, and they're getting ready to graduate from college. And, uh, and he's like, oh, no. Like, what, he thought he would have been a millionaire, but he wasn't. And, and so he decides to get them all laptop batteries instead. And it's so awful to watch as he like explains that he can't pay for their tuition but uh i wonder if you knew that that episode is actually based on something that actually happened uh in 1981 in east harlem there was a millionaire named eugene lang and he was invited to speak at a sixth grade graduation ceremony at ps 121 in east harlem Re in 1981 east harlem was like as rough as it gets and this guy had somehow kind of made it out and become a millionaire, and he was getting ready to speak to these uh, sixth graders, and he was just like, he came to the moment, he was going to deliver a message where if he was going to say, like, if you work hard, you can succeed, and in the moment, on the spur of the moment, he just said, oh, I'm going to pay your college tuition if you graduate, because he realized that his message of, like, work hard and you'll succeed was so irrelevant to the people he was actually looking at in that room. And so on the spur of the moment, he was like, if you graduate, I'll pay your college tuition. And amazingly, 90% of those students that were there that day graduated from high school, like way more than typically graduated, which was unheard of at that time. And it's not hard to figure out why, right? Like they now, they had incentive to graduate. They had a basis for hope outside of themselves and whatever they could produce themselves, their own efforts. And tonight I want us to think about hope uh, through the lens of the characters that are uh, shown in this story so that we can see what hope Jesus offers as we struggle through life, as we seek to be made well. And so I want to look first at the character of the invalid or the paralytic or whatever he is. It doesn't exactly say. And this passage starts off, uh, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem at the temple and there's a pool there called Bethesda, still there today. I've seen it, the ruins of it. Uh, so you can go, you know, it describes kind of where it is. So archaeologists have found this pool. And it was a pool that was believed to have healing powers at the time. Uh, John's text is, doesn't speak to whether he thought it actually did have power or not. But it was, it was believed at the time that like the waters, there would be like a spring that would stir up the waters every now and then. If you could get in at that time, you could be healed. And so Jesus walks by there and he's drawn to the person who seems to be the worst off. Just think about that for a second. That's what God is like. God walks into a room and he looks for who is the most in need. Uh, when we walk into a room, what do we typically look for? Like, who's the coolest person that I feel comfortable with or something like that? Uh, but Jesus, who is God, he shows us God, says, walks into a room and he says, who is the neediest one here? And this is a man with a pretty big need. He's been an invalid, it says, for 38 years uh, think about what that experience might be like, right? Uh, of wanting to do well, and it's 38 years longer than any of us have been alive goes by, and we're still not well. And to that man, Jesus asks a question which sounds at first strange. He says, do you want to be healed? 
strange, you know, it's kind of like, I think so. <laughs> yeah. But listen to, listen to how the man answers, because Jesus asks that question very intentionally. And the man answers, he says, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Uh, so think about that. Jesus asks him a yes or no question, and he gives an explanation in response. And I want you to think about why he would do that, okay? Uh, what should he have answered? Yes, I want to be healed. And why doesn't he? It's because he has no hope. Or maybe a better way to put it is that he does have hope. Uh, you know, it's not, he has some hope, but it, it's in his ability to bring about this ridiculous set of circumstances that's never going to, it hasn't happened for 38 years. It's not going to happen. And so it's really no hope at all. And on one hand, you feel sorry for this guy, but on the other hand, he's kind of a pathetic character in this story, right? Uh, you know, 38 years of the same strategy that won't work, like, something's up with that. Uh, he doesn't bother to find out who Jesus is after Jesus heals him. At the end of the passage, he actually, like, tells on Jesus uh, so that they can, uh, like, persecute Jesus. Uh, so this guy's kind of a pathetic character. And we're meant to see him as that. And this guy's kind of beat up, and he's tired, and he's bitter. And it just seems like a guy who's just totally given up. And rather than look outward for help, he just kind of looks nowhere. So much so that when someone actually asks him if he wants to be healed, it's like he doesn't even notice that he got asked that. I want you to think about yourself tonight. Uh, What are the circumstances in your life where you've been acting kind of like this invalid or this paralytic? Uh, Kind of half-heartedly looking to your own resources to get better, but never really getting anywhere. And all the while growing in cynicism, growing in bitterness. Uh, so much so that God has kind of totally disappeared from the equation. You know, maybe it's your family life, right? Or maybe it's your relationships that you kind of surround yourself with or your friendships. Maybe it's a struggle against sin that's just persisted for a really long time or your social situation. Uh, Some situation where you just kind of get stuck and you've been like kind of trying but kind of giving up. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And you say, well, this is how things have been for me for a while, and this is what I've tried. And Do you do that? And the struggle and the sadness and the bitterness begin, if that's you, they begin to drown out the possibility of actually ever looking outward for true help or true healing or hope. And so that's the the invalid in the story. But I want to now look at the religious leaders. It says the Jews in this passage, and that would be Jewish religious leaders. And uh, they respond in a really amazing way when Jesus heals the man. He, Jesus heals this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. It's amazing. That never happens. He says to the man, take up your mat and walk. And he does. But in verse 9, it says it was the Sabbath. And the Jewish leaders say to this man, they see the man walking, holding his bed that Jesus told him to pick up. And they say, it's not lawful for you to pick up your bed. Now, what you need to know about the Sabbath is that like God's, the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments to his people was to rest on the Sabbath. And it was meant to be like a blessing for God's people. Uh, it was meant to be an act of faith where they said, you know what, like, 
Uh, God has told us that we should rest on this day, and I'm going to trust him. Even though I feel like I could work more and make more money, I'm going to trust him. And it's this way of God blessing his, his people and providing for them. But if you fast forward to Jesus' time, uh, it was more of like a way of measuring how good you were. And these religious leaders actually created 39 Sabbath categories of work. So like they wrote them all down. And, they, and one of the categories was you shouldn't carry anything on the Sabbath. And uh, if you go to Israel today, I've been to Israel, and did you know that the elevators in Israel on the Sabbath, uh, the buttons don't work on the elevators, and the elevators are just programmed to stop on every floor, lest you do the work of pressing a button on the Sabbath, okay? And all these things are totally missing the point of what the Sabbath is about, and they've turned it from a blessing into kind of like a curse, into this measuring stick of how am I doing? Am I doing better than you? And, uh, and then the man who has been healed says, uh, the man, like they're like, who told you to do that? And he says, the man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. And just stop there for a second. What would be the appropriate response to that statement? The man who healed me told me to take up my bed and walk. It should be like, wait, what? You got healed? You've been crippled for 38 years? That's incredible. Who healed you? How did that happen? Like, we need to have a celebration. And instead they ask, who told you to pick up your mat? And eventually they find out that it was Jesus and they decide that they need to kill him. So what does it say about these Jewish leaders that they can't look past these silly rules that they've put in place to measure their religious devotion. It says that their hope is in themselves, right? It's in how they can perform. If they can follow all the rules and obey everything and never mess up and get all their ducks in a row, everything will work out for them. And the result is that they're completely self-consumed. So much so that they totally miss this amazing miracle that happens right in front of them. Okay, so that's where the religious leaders are at. And now I want to look more closely at Jesus. Um, why does Jesus walk into the temple on the Sabbath, go right up to this kind of pathetic, invalid character, and heal him? Like he's, he knows that these religious leaders are going to freak out. He knows what the Sabbath is about. He knows how, what they're going to do. He knows ultimately that they're going to want to kill him for it. And I want you to think about why John wrote this account. So why does John kind of uh, put these two interactions together right next to each other? And he does it so that we might see the connection between them. And specifically, they're the same. They're the same people, the religious leaders and the invalid. Uh, go back to that question, do you want to be healed? All right, what really needs to be healed uh, what really needs to be healed in this invalid and in the religious leaders is the way they keep putting their hope in their own resources, so much so that they become self-consumed and completely miss God's offer of grace and mercy right in front of them. You see how that's happening in both of those scenarios? It's right in front of them and they miss it. They're consumed with themselves and what they can do to make their situations better. 
And so when Jesus goes and heals this invalid, it's really for those religious leaders. Like he's trying to show them something. It's like he's saying, see this pathetic invalid? Your hope is in the same place as his hope. It's in yourself. And it's just not going to work. That will not work for you. Uh, Some of you have heard me tell the story before of my dad becoming a U.S. citizen. My dad is Brazilian, uh, which makes me half Brazilian. And my dad, we uh, lived some other places when I was a little kid, and we moved to the U.S. in 1990. And uh, you have to live in the U.S. for seven years before you become a citizen. And so in 1997 or so, uh, my dad applied for citizenship. And uh, to become a citizen, you have to, like, go, and there's this final, like, interview process after everything, all the application and stuff, and you talk with a caseworker. And you have to be able to interact with them and speak English well enough to just, like, conduct the interview. You don't have to have perfect English, obviously, to become a citizen. But you have to be able to, like, answer basic questions that they ask you. And uh, my dad was there that day, and there was this, like, commotion. And there were all these Egyptian people there. And they were upset because this old Egyptian man was being denied citizenship. And uh, apparently what had been happening is that they were, the interview was about to take place. And they were like, you know, why do you want to be a citizen? And he was like, God bless America. And they were like, do you have any job prospects? And he was like, God bless America. God, God bless George Washington. All he knew how to say was God bless America and God bless George Washington. And they were like, no, it's <laughs> not good enough, right? Um, I want you to consider that that's what we look like when we look to our own resources to live life in God's world. All right, trying to impress God with religious stuff, like I go to church every week, I read my Bible every day, or whatever, like anything like that, or perhaps living for the perfect resume and the perfect job and the perfect home and the perfect spouse and perfect finances, so I'll never need any help from anyone ever, or never letting on that you might be a weak, that you have any weakness, and just living life alone. Um, how do you know if that might be you? One of the easiest ways to know is if your hope, that your hope is in yourself is if you have a hard time noticing people around you and having compassion on them. Uh, another way to know if your hope is in yourself is if something good happens to someone else and you hate them for it. Because it's all about you. The good stuff is supposed to be about you. Uh, some of you have met my little kids, Margo and Asher. Uh, Margo's four, Asher is one and a half. And we are in this like grueling stage of parenting where all we do is like, you know, my daughter, she's like set up something that she's playing with. And then Asher, who's one and a half and doesn't know better, is just like wanting to play, but he's messing it all up. And she's like, that's mine, that's mine. Like, get him away. And he's like, ah, And, you know, all we hear, so much of what we hear is like, that's mine, get him away. Um, you know, you don't have to learn that. Like, we didn't, our kids did not learn that. They came prepackaged with that instinct, right? And we do too. And that's why we need to be healed. Uh, in verse 14, Jesus tells the invalid, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you which is an interesting thing to say, right? What could be worse than being an invalid for 38 years? 
Uh, and what we know, because uh, later on in this chapter, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus actually uh, tells them that he's referring about to the judgment day. Uh, there's going to be a judgment day. And I promise you that on judgment day, when we all stand before God, your list of accomplishments will not hold you up. Okay? Your list of accomplishments will not hold you up. And so what will hold us up? Where is the hope, then, that I can look to to get me out of this impossible, self-focused misery that we're talking about in this passage? And I want us to think about that question with another question, which is why are the Jewish leaders absolutely furious with Jesus at the end of this passage? It says at the end, it says it's because he calls God his father and makes himself equal with God. And it's actually kind of easy to forget that no one called God father before Jesus did. Uh, If you've grown up around a church uh, or around a Bible, you probably are accustomed to hearing God called father, like in the Lord's Prayer and uh, other places. Uh, But uh, that was never the case until Jesus came along, uh, the son of God, and started calling God father. Um, Why do we call God father now? It's because there was one time when Jesus didn't call God Father. It was as he hung dying on the cross and cried out. Do you remember what he cried out? He doesn't say, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's going on there? On the cross, Jesus is losing the fatherhood of God so that we can have it. He takes the judgment that we deserve for being miserable, self-focused fools so that for us, the judgment day can be a reunion with our Father. So that for us, a judgment day will be a day of celebration where the world is made right again, where not just our bodies are healed, but everything about the world gets healed. Okay, and if that's my hope for the future, then I can endure times of misery with hope. I can focus on the people around me instead of getting everything right in my life today. And if my hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus, then I will be truly healed. Okay, nothing else will heal you. There's no other hope. And so I want to ask you tonight, if, do you want to be healed? And if so, turn away from everything you think you have going for you and turn to Jesus instead. That's the message of this text. Uh, So let me close by praying uh, that we would be able to do just that. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, you know how desperate we are for help, uh, how uh, slow we are to cry out for it, and uh, how quick we are to try some new strategy to get better, something where we just kind of uh, pool our resources together to try to make ourselves well. We pray that we would uh, turn away from that and experience life as it was meant to be, uh, with the hope of uh, life with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.